Well, hello and happy summer, everybody out there in podcast land. This is Paul Sons to be coming to you with a special summer edition of the Structured Rambling Podcast, a podcast that looks at literature and texts and the ideas that come from them. Um, this is a first of a two-parter called July Jerusalem. July Jerusalem. My own punny title got screwed up on the first pronouncement of it. July Jerusalem, a two-parter at the end of July 2021. Um, you'll see why it's called that, but uh, today we're talking about some, some texts I have recently encountered on Judaism. And so... Ambrose and his orchestra are playing us a selection of Hebrew dances. I hope I have not tread upon anybody's uh, traditions. I just looked it up on Spotify. This is what I found. I grew up in a small town in Saskatchewan. My mother's family on her dad's side was French Catholic and my father's family was Scandinavian Lutheran although not practicing. I went to Catholic school until grade 7. I was baptized, confirmed, I took religion class, I read a lot of the New Testament in school. But the old, I mostly saw as great stories like David and Goliath and Noah's Ark or Samson. And they looked really good as pictures in a children's Bible, which was always to be found in a Catholic school. For me, Christianity didn't take. And by the time I finished high school, I was not Catholic at all. No, not even Christian. But I've always respected people of any faith, as long as they're not fundamental, judgy, or intrusive in the affairs of others, unfortunately. That is kind of common, that set of behaviors in most faiths, and especially in the the faiths I know the best. I didn't really understand Judaism as a kid. There were no Jews where I grew up. And there aren't lots where I live now, despite the fact that I live just outside of a city of a million people that does have a synagogue inside of it. As a kid, I knew something about the Holocaust. And I knew there were lots of Jewish characters in movies and on TV. I knew Jesus was a Jew, but I guess a different kind of Jew. I didn't really understand what that meant. There was a lot of teaching you to believe without teaching you why in, in Catholic school. It took me years to piece it all together. And when I began to teach world religions, I learned it was far more complex than I'd ever. See, when you grow up plain old Roman Catholic, You're instilled with, well, you're instilled with an immense capacity for guilt that you never truly shake, even if you shake the religion. But also you're instilled with a sense of, we're right, we were right first, and we always have and always will be right. I didn't group Anglicans, Lutherans, Mormons, Baptists, or Seventh-day Adventists uh, into Christianity because all I knew was they were wrong. And Jews? I equated them and the Romans to the villains of the New Testament. That was all. As I got older, I learned more. Uh, I, I moved to bigger places. I traveled the world. 
I lived in another country. I met many people who were Jewish. And I learned so much more about that faith. It was in these years, again, of teaching world religions that I finally lay all the pieces down in order so that I could teach myself what I didn't yet know in order to teach my students. And I tried to keep it straight. This is a feat. It's a hugely complicated faith, full of rules and laws, and the power and authority of the rabbis is far more significant than even the sternest Catholic bishop. For the word is law in Judaism, and these laws are complex and date back thousands of years. So the rabbis serve as interpreters of these laws for a new age. When you learn about Torah and Talmud, about Yahweh and Hasidics, about Israel and Palestine, the complexity of this faith staggers you. However, so does its immovability. I worry that much of, much of what has befallen the Jews over the centuries has come from Gentile, re, re, from Gentile reaction to Hebrew inflexibility. That's not a veiled anti-Semitism. It's a, it's, a mu, it's a complicated discussion, but it's kind of the immovable force, no, immovable object and really strong force. I'm missing the adjective. Something powerful hitting something that sits still well. The juggernaut and the blob, for those of you who can get an X-Men reference. Okay, so far you probably think maybe this is interesting, but where's the literature? This is a literary podcast. Well, first off, Judaism is a religion of the word, more than any other, with a book of laws and a group of men whose job it is to read that book on behalf of the layman for the called The Source by James A. Michener, and a nonfiction text called The Year of Living Biblically by A.J. Jacobs. In the past year and a half, I've been revisiting many classic texts, reading ones I've always put off, studying works I've always wanted to study, and reacquainting myself with ones that I needed to reacquaint myself with. I'm doing it in a historical timeline. Um, and this podcast has become a great place to report it. Um, I'm slowly crossing from late antiquity to the Middle Ages. Uh, probably I'm going to be looking at the various King Arthur legends in the early fall here. But so last summer, in the heat of July, I was amongst the, the stories of the ancient past. And of course, there is the Hebrew Bible. The first five books of this make up the which are rabbinic interpretations that tell you what it all means and how to act in your daily life. The Old Testament is essentially a protracted story of favoritism. God loves the Hebrews best, and despite allowing them to be slaves in Egypt and nomads in the desert, he always is singling someone out from them to talk to and to give his laws um, 
they are his chosen people and he always has a chosen leader. He's got Abraham, Noah, Moses, Isaiah, Saul, Samuel, David. God loves to play favorites in the Old Testament. He also is a bit old-fashioned in demanding sacrifices like his ancient Greek peers did. Show me that you love me by giving me the best piece of this ox. Which doesn't make sense. Why does, why does a god need burned hunks of meat? Anyways, he also, the god of the Old Testament, apparently has OCD. For numbers is a list of extremely specific expectations. This is a god of rules and measurements, and he demands his chosen people honor that. It's a long slog through numbers and Deuteronomy, all of these these measurements, all of these begattings, wanderings, just to bridge the gap between the Bible myths you know, like Cain and Abel, both of the arcs, Samson, and David and Goliath. It's also strange for me, and I'll say more on this when I talk about uh, Jacob's book at the end, because I went, like I said, to a Catholic school as a little kid, and I will never be able to read the Old Testament without seeing it as the precursor to the new. I look at it with the eyes of a Christian. Even if I'm not a Christian myself, I was raised in a part of the world where Christian traditions have the greater sway. Reading the stories and rules in the Old Testament, one can see why the Talmud and other forms of rabbinic interpretations are needed. The life lessons put down in the Torah have less practical association. The further the Hebrews got from Israel and from the two millennia before the birth of Jesus, the less applies. I don't own an ass. I never have. I likely never will. Is tweeting on the Sabbath a sin? The rabbis needed to interpret an unchanging ancient text to suit an evolving modern people. This got problematic. As you study Judaism, you can't help but be horrified at the persecutions of the Jews by every other people's expulsions, uh, restrictions, ghettoizations, the injustice of most nations' laws upon their Jews, the horrors of the Crusades, the Inquisition, and the Holocaust. But equally troubling is the inf well, not equally, no. Not near equally, but also troubling. Troubling in a different way, less horrifying, but still troubling, is the inflexibility of the rabbis. The insistence on following ancient laws to the letter in any situation, no matter how ludicrous. Many times in history, Jews found themselves converting, either sincerely or through convenience and outward appearances, to a faith that offered fewer restrictions. Perhaps they wished to be treated more fairly. Uh, they wanted a divorce. Um, they wanted to behave differently on the Sabbath. Judaism has an entrenched conservatism that is as frustrating and illog illogical as the most fundamental sects of Islam and Christianity. This culture of rabbinic authority and entrenchment in rightness is what has led to some of the friction. But as well as the blaming the Jews for killing Christ has, has been a Christian persecution of them for 2,000 years, they are blamed with the death of Christ. Now, I've always philosophically wondered about that. 
The Philistines of Jerusalem's temple pushed for Jesus' execution, but the Romans enacted it. Crucifixion was a Roman creation. Why hasn't the Catholic Church turned its ire at the Romans and the Italians? Well, that would be inconvenient given the location of the Vatican and Constantine's conversion leading to the Roman Catholicism and the Holy Roman Empire. But call a spade a spade, it was the Romans that killed him. Um, I once asked this very evangelical Catholic friend of mine, who I'll, I'll be mentioning in part two of my July Jerusalem bonus episodes. Uh, anyways, I asked this Catholic friend of mine, why the historical cursing of the Jews and of Judas, the apostle Judas, if what they did was necessary for the resurrection of Jesus and the restoring of the covenant? They, they, they helped the process. His answer was they didn't know that they were helping, which as logically sound as it is, is wholly unsatisfying. But the Jews were the first people of the word. They were the first faith to define itself by a text, and Christianity and Islam built their texts upon its solid foundation. All religions of any note, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, have a sacred text that defines it. This allows a people to have a, a, a touchstone of who they are, and it's why the Jews have stayed a strong and faithful people despite their wanderings and persecutions. It also made them more immune to assimilation, which also led to much of the resentment by their neighbors. The Old Testament, then, is a text very much like the collections of other mythic stories. When it isn't too busy providing measurements and 3,000-year-old expectations and advice that have no modern application until rabbis interpret it. Unlike the New Testament, which, if you take faith out of the equation, is basically about telling people to just be good to each other, the Old Testament sets up the tenets of obedience and an omnipotent figure that demands sacrifice and worship and does not treat all peoples equally. He's got his favorites. But worst of all is the Christian interpretation of the Old Testament to lend credence to crazy. This is where the more fundamentalist and wingy Christian sects get rolling. Christians who read the Old Testament verbatim and impose its strict rules upon their own faith end up with some of the more bizarre and dangerous concepts. This is where much of the homophobia comes from, the misogyny um, about women's cleanliness. But, to be fair, St. Paul was, of course, the numero uno biblical misogynist. And the vindication of being awful to your enemies. See the pattern? You read the Old Testament literally. You read Paul literally. Paul, of course, being the reason Christianity broke from Judaism. And you end up with a lot of our modern troubles. My namesake, Paul, was the most powerful of all apostles, and he never even met Jesus. Christian readers of the Old Testament and of the writings of St. Paul can conveniently ignore Jesus. Think about that. Anyway, the point I've sort of worked away from is that the Jews were one of the first religions bound to a book, and they have remained that 
for better or for worse down through the ages. It is a faith where literacy is a paramount virtue. The leaders of the church, the rabbis, get their positions and esteem by their ability to read, consider, analyze, and interpret the sacred texts. Despite its entrenched nature at times, that's a concept I have a lot of respect for, a literary faith. The second text I encountered recently was James A. Michener's massive historical fiction novel, The Source. Michener had a, he's passed away now, he's had a, he had a very famous style that I actually first encountered in a different author, British author Edward Rutherford. What this style involves is the writer takes a location like a city or a country and then writes a series of novellas and short stories, episodes, um, through time with some links between each of them. Rutherford usually has a set of families and, and it's different generations of them. Uh, Rutherford has done London, Ireland, Russia, New York, Paris. Michener's doing it here with Makor, uh, a place near Jerusalem in Israel. Michener, snar- M- Michener starts with prehistory, pre-Judaism, and sort of pursues the place. Um, and through some real but mostly fictitious characters right down to the volatile period following the reestablishment of of the Israeli state in the 1940s. The the novel has a framing narrative, an archaeological dig in the 1960s, and as each level of history is unearthed and explained, the protagonist of this framing narrative, a man man named John Cullinane, an American-Irish Catholic archaeologist, he discusses and debates the faith, the politics, and the history of that particular region and its philosophies um, with his Jewish and Arab co-workers. The framing narrative, I find a bit distracting. It gets melodramatic and soap operatic at times, and mostly I can do without it. When it does work is when the characters in it, in the framing narrative, provide commentary on the particular era of the dig. This is as good as a book club or a history class when it works, but you can tell this novel is nearly a half century old because it takes so long to get started. And the ending is long delayed after the last historical epoch has ended. Readers today just don't have enough patience for that, for a hundred pages of introduction. Now, I'm not going to judge him, Michener, on one book, but for my money, I prefer the Edward Rutherford approach, even if he was just ripping Michener off. You learn a lot reading this book about the Hebrews and their religion and its traditional place, but It is a historical fiction, and you have to be careful believing everything, but certain things become reaffirmed. For example, when the First Crusade gets rolling, the Christian knights of Germany and France massacre all Jews they can find on their way down to the Holy Land. A story of a man who has never been accepted as a Jew and never able to marry a divorcee until he converts to Christianity highlights the inflexibility of the rabbis and the Talmud. And Michener's depiction of the military struggle of the new state of Israel after the Holocaust was more like current events when he wrote this novel. It's literature, but literature that makes you think. The best kind of literature. The two things I took from it most is that the Holocaust was by no means the first horrid attempt to eradicate the Jews. 
I'd known this before, but Michener's depiction of the Crusades, the Inquisition, even the British support of the Palestinians in the post-war battles with the Jews shows how these people have faced struggle, conflict, persecution since basically they had a faith. I speak about how the Romans actually did the deed of killing Christ and they've been bathing in the blood of Jews far longer. They destroyed the Jewish temple. Pontius Pilate found them especially infuriating. And why is my second reminder from Michener's novel. These people of the sacred text are their own enemy at times because the text doesn't evolve. Part of Christ's secular mission was to cut through the rabbinic bureaucracy that was weighing the faithful down. Judaism has long been as complex as civil law, with none of the law's ability to reform itself based on modern change. The Talmud and most rabbis generally err on the side of conservatism. This usually leads to strife. Now, my wife and my friend Carly, who I, who, who's got shoutouts before on my podcast, recommended A.J. Jacobs' uh, The Year of Living Biblically. Uh, Jacobs is a minor celebrity who has written for Esquire magazine and who has made a name for himself in nonfiction by doing something for a year and then writing it as he does it. Um, I'd read his other book, The Know-It-All, about his attempt to read the entire Encyclopedia Britannica and report his findings as he did. In this current venture... He follows the Bible as literally as possible, attempting to ratify thousands uh, uh, of, uh, sorry, thousand-year-old rules with urban New York modernity. Jacobs is a non-practicing Jew, and so most of his book, like most of the Bible, is dedicated to that wacky Old Testament. And so I was a little disappointed with his observance of Christianity, though he did go to a snake handling service. Uh, you know, there's some, there's some asides that are fun. Over the course of a year, he wears only specific fabrics, sews tassels on his garments, lets his beard and his hair grow long. Uh, he reads the Bible constantly, which, man, that's tough, and sits nowhere his wife has when she's menstruating. A feminist, she sabotages his observance of the unclean woman by sitting on everything so he has to sit on the floor. Then he considers stoning someone, but doesn't. Uh, he kills a chicken, he eats a raw egg, and he constantly checks in with rabbis who, for me, only confuse the silliness of his venture. He travels to the Holy Land, to Amish country, to the Bible Belt in the deep south of the United States. It's an entertaining yarn, if you like Jacob's style. He is seeking a mass audience, and he tells a humorous story relying on his own semi-celebrity, the assumption that his personal anecdotes and observations are valuably enough, valuable enough to entertain you, and he absolutely adores pop culture, referring to it constantly in asides and similes, and I find that very irritating i found i find it irritating in all his writing I, but i'm i don't i've never seen a kardashian show or anything i'm mad maybe it's that i'm a stodgy old man it's a bit narcissistic for me his book this isn't so much the year of living biblically as the year of this specific dude living his specific life biblically in a specific way that he thinks you'd enjoy 
It's harmless fun, but it's not especially revealing. All it does for me is remind me how not so much of the Old Testament and religion in general is when placed in a modern context. Last year, I read Tara Westover's Educated, uh, a nonfiction novel about a fundamentalist, paranoid Mormon family that stockpiled fuel and readied itself for the apocalypse. Westover, who eventually broke from her abusive family, details her father's over and misreading of the Old Testament to suit his modernish Christian family's life. They'd randomly quit milk, use no modern medicine, make their own soaps, all because of of how he read with no expertise the translation of a translation of a thousands-year-old book. One must respect Judaism. It has survived despite persecutions, despite the Holocaust. It's the first great religion of the book. Jews are a hardy and brave people. For me, though, as with Islam and Christianity, the failing of a faith is in its inflexibility and its judgment of others. So, that is part one of my two-part July bonus, July Jerusalem episodes. I hope you've enjoyed this particular rabbit hole and I hope to see you later this week with part two of July Jerusalem. <laughs>